Why don't you grab your Bible and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. We're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the scriptures. And so um, uh, I love that we're you, that you guys are willing to do that with me as we uh, gain some ground. I feel like we're in a whole new section, uh, uh, even though we're in the same book. Isaiah chapter 40 shifts gears, <clears throat> and um, I'm kind of excited about this uh, section of Isaiah because the first part, Isaiah chapter 1 through 39, is brutal. And it's funny because remember how we always say where we're at in the Bible is where we're at in life? Uh, well, we've been through some brutal times, and, uh, you know, this, this uh, book of Isaiah has been matching uh, where we're at, and so I'm really excited because maybe chapter 40 brings a new day uh, for uh, Athey Creekers, uh, and uh, it's going to start out with some good, good words here in this section, so pretty exciting. Um, you know, one of the things that I've noticed over the years is there's a gap in a lot of people's understanding of God because they don't have a good example of a father here on this earth, in this lifetime. If you were raised without a father, or maybe uh, you know your dad was abusive, or <clears throat> maybe he just wasn't a great dad. There's a few of those out there too. Um, and so you kind of have this view of God that might be a little bit amiss, um, because you don't really know what a good father looks like. And <clears throat> I think I've learned to really appreciate that over the years more and more that I grew up with a dad, you know, and my dad wasn't perfect, uh, my mom and dad, I, I think I sometimes present them that way because I kind of think of them that way, but, um, but they had their mistakes too. But, but one of the things I was so thankful for growing up and have learned to appreciate it more and more is <clears throat> that my dad, he demanded obedience, but he also knew how to turn the pressure dials back. Um, uh, what do I mean by that? You know, um, I think there's some dads that are ill-equipped for fatherhood who keep the screws tightened all the time, and there's no relief valve. Uh, the kids always think they're in trouble. They say, man, watch out for dad. Look out for dad. Just wherever dad is, don't be there because he's mad at you. He's going to turn the heat up. He's going to make you do more stuff, and, uh, <clears throat> and there was never that pressure relief valve. Um, for me, there were several examples of that. Sometimes my dad would just choose to be fun and merciful and kind. Um, a lot of times he was, you know, demanding and told me I had a lot of work to do. <laughs> but there was this balance, <clears throat> especially when I was in trouble, uh, busted, uh, which I spent a lot of time. My fourth grade year was my uh, rebellious years. Some of you rebelled when you were 18 or 21. For me, fourth grade. Uh, man, it was that year that I was a drug dealer and I, was, I joined a gang. Um, true stories, actually, uh, <clears throat> in my fourth grade, Roosh Elementary School there. But <clears throat> one of the things about my dad is uh, when I got in trouble, it was always very clear. There was a nice, clear line, and I, I would get a spanking. But then after the spanking, he would come and, you know, remind me that now I have this brand new, fresh start. Now, some people say, well, Brett, spanking children is abusive. Well, I think not spanking children is abusive. And why do I think that? Because the Bible, if you have a problem with what I just said, um, the Bible says if you spare the rod, you hate your son. Spare the rod, spoil the child. That's what the Bible teaches. And we've done whole teachings on spanking. I'm not going to go into all that um, because it's important. But, but um, a lot of spanking that people do today is abusive. Um, and the biblical way of spanking is loving and kind. But one of the things about a spanking that was good for a kid is it allowed me to sort of reset and start over. 
And there's a lot of kids that knew they did something bad and they should be busted or were busted, but there was never that, you know, dad was just mad and he kind of was indefinitely mad and uh, he, he was disappointed. And, um, and the dads never give their kids a chance to sort of come up for air. And so there's people that grow up thinking that God is not God the Father, he's the Godfather. And they, they, they view God as this angry God who's gonna off you or leave a horse's head in your bed or something like that. And uh, people really do have a hard time understanding how God loves us. And, and you know, so many kids grow up without that reset, without that time to know that the Lord is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, patient, and compassionate. This is the God that we know and love. Now, in the first part of Isaiah, we didn't see much of that. We saw the God of wrath and, you know, where you know, Isaiah is saying, you know, woe unto the rebellious children of Israel, for they take counsel of, uh, the, you know, the men, but not of God. And God's kind of being brutal, heavy. He's correcting their course because he loves them. But in the latter part of Isaiah, we're going to see that, that same God, who's the same yesterday, today, forever. He's not changing. He's just showing his nature and his character. And this is the part I hope you can see, that yes, God demands righteousness. And um, we're all in big trouble because of our sin. But this is where the Lord, the loving Father in heaven, gives us a reprieve and a forgiveness of sin and a start that's new and fresh. And uh, man, I love that. When you get that, when you really understand God's grace, that he's merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in mercy and love. I mean, these are the kinds of things that the Lord, uh, our God in heaven does. And that's really what this chapter starts in, in this next section of Isaiah is going to be all about. Um, Isaiah chapter 40 is a chapter chocked full of some powerful and amazing verses. Man, you can take any one verse in this chapter and do sermon after sermon on a single verse. Uh, they're chocked full of powerful meaning. In fact, some of these verses, some of you have memorized, some of you have heard forever. Uh, these, these verses are, are common because they're, they, they just strike a chord within humanity. And chapter 40 is where the pressure relief valve goes off and man, we go, oh, the Lord is good and he's merciful and he's got a plan and a purpose. But I want to show you, it's, it's not just that he's good, it's, it's, it's the context of his goodness that Isaiah 40 touches on. And I want to show you that. Let's take a look. Isaiah chapter 40, we're just going to bounce around this morning on some verses here in Isaiah. But, um, but, but on Wednesday night, we'll cover the whole chapter and look at the context, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> and all that. So we'll be ready to roll. Um, so it starts off, Isaiah 40. Let's just look at some of these high points. Isaiah 40, verse 1, starts off, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that, she, that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received the Lord's hand double for all her sins." Right there at the beginning, the, the, this sounds like a very different Isaiah. And by the way, the academics try to say this can't be the same Isaiah um, because the writing style's different and it sounds different. This must be two Isaiahs writing this book. And they come up with this sort of Deutero-Isaiah theory. The only problem with the Deutero-Isaiah theory is John the Apostle in John chapter 12 talked about this and said it's the same Isaiah. That's what John said. 
inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, it's the same Isaiah. Um, so forget the scholarly people that try to say there's a deutero. There's even a group out there that believes in a trito Isaiah, three Isaiahs. Um, um, they say, well, the Isaiah, this Isaiah must be a schizophrenic guy because one minute he's saying, woe to the rebellious children of Israel. Next minute he's saying, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Um, totally different guys. Nope, same guy. But God, who's multifaceted, um, speaks through Isaiah here, and, he, and he's now giving a word of comfort. And I love this about, about our Lord. He wants to comfort the people, and he wants to, I believe, comfort us this morning by his word. And I think we should allow him to do that. If you're troubled, is anyone troubled? Is anyone depressed? Is anyone tired and weary of what's going on around us? Isaiah 40 is just for you. <laughs> we'll take a look. Um, the things I want to show you, many people have mu huge misconceptions about God. They think he's the cosmic killjoy. He's angry at them, and he's going to squish them like a bug. Uh, that's what God is, you know. They think. But those misconceptions about God, Isaiah spends careful time here identifying the God in which he's referring to. And uh, this is important because the people over time have lost sight of who God is. The Jews have forgotten who their, the, the God of the Jews really, really would be. Now, why would they be forgetting this? There's several reasons. One, they were in bad standing with God and they knew it. They were sinful, they were worshiping idols, they were doing all kinds of wicked things. And so they were, it's, it's like I was talking about earlier, when you were a naughty little child, did you run up to your dad and look for him or did you hide from him? <clears throat> Remember when Adam and Eve, <clears throat> what's the first thing they did when they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They hid themselves from the Lord. And so the Jews have been in bad standing with the Lord because of their own sin. And so they've been kind of hiding from the Lord. And Isaiah is saying, you guys have forgotten who the Lord is. Um, that's what I was talking about. There's people that don't understand that you can go to the Lord even when you're in trouble. Um, you don't have to hide yourself from God or, or, or God forbid, go to other gods. That's what the children of Israel did. They turned to Moloch and Baal and Chemosh and Ashtoreth and all these gods and goddesses um, instead of the true and living God because of their guilt. And they would also just forget which one's which? Which one's the true God? Remember how there was confusion even when the enemy, the Assyrians came? Remember Rav Shaka, how he tried to mess with their minds saying, your king Hezekiah, didn't he tear down your God? Uh, he, he broke down the altars of your God and how, how is your God gonna help you since Hezekiah tore down the altar of your God? Now, do you remember? That was just a twisting of what actually happened. Hezekiah came and tore down all the false God uh, idols and altars that were built to false gods. And he repaired and restored the true worship in the temple of the true and living God. That's what actually happened. But the people were misdirected and they, they were so far from the Lord, they kind of confused him with all the other gods. There was confusion. And by the way, that's happening today in our culture. There's great confusion about who God is. And if you want to know who God is, you got to look to the Bible, not to the History Channel or Discover Channel or, um, you know, uh, Wolf Blitzer on CNN, because they all get it really, really, really wrong. Well, Brett, what do you know about that more than the Discover Channel, History Channel? Just a Bible person. Be a Bible person, because the Bible explains everything to us. Let me give you some examples of how our world, we've lost it. We've kind of forgotten 
what the true and living God is really like. And we, we confuse, um, you know, uh, for example, uh, a lot of people in the world think that Allah and the God of the Bible is the same. I'm here to tell you that they are not the same. Allah is a false God. Um, and uh, I remember one time I was here teaching uh, at Athe and uh, uh, there was a rabbi. <laughs> it, this is great, it was a rabbi, sounds like a bad joke. There was a rabbi and a Mossad agent. <laughs> and they came and walking up to me. And, uh, <clears throat> and I, I'm friends with these guys. <clears throat> but this rabbi is from Jerusalem. Uh, excuse me, got a frog in the throat. <clears> throat. And so this rabbi from Jerusalem came up and he said, Brett, you just said that the, the, um, the God of the Jews and of Christians and the God of the Muslims is a different God. And he said, that is incorrect. You were wrong about that. And I, and I said, well, um, tell me how I'm wrong, you know, because, um, you know, I know that I hear that all the time, that the people say that Allah and Jehovah of the Jews is the same of the Christians, but it's, I, Allah is not my God. And he said, oh, you, you're mistaken. Well, the Mossad agent, this was funny, he looked at the, the rabbi and said, he, Brett's right, um, they're, they're not the same. Well, the rabbi looked a little stunned that, you know, here's this American pastor and a Mossad agent and this Jewish rabbi is trying to convince me that Allah and Jehovah are the same. I said, man, um, let me just talk about me and Christianity for a second. I can't, I'm not going to speak to Judaism right now, I said, but um, as a Christian, um, I believe that Jesus is God. God became a man and lived among us. Does the Muslim believe in my God, Jesus? And he said, oh, well, no. I said, well, see, uh, Allah is not my God because Jesus, in fact, I reminded him there in the Temple Mount in Jerusalem on the Dome of the Rock Shrine, the Golden Dome that's there on the Temple Mount, you've all seen pictures of, and maybe you've been there. On the rim of that uh, you know, shrine, there's Arabic writing, and all the way around the thing, it says, Allah does not beget, nor does he have a begotten. Uh, the idea is Allah does not have a son. And it says it all around, Allah doesn't have a son. Allah doesn't have a son. The reason why is they're making it real clear that Jesus is not God, um, and it wasn't born of God. Um, that's an important part of Islam. So as a Christian, it's really clear, Jesus is God. And all true Christians believe that. Um, and so, so I can't, you, uh, now I also said, do you know the history of Allah? Uh, Allah was actually a, a crescent moon god, a black stone god that was chosen by Muhammad, you know, around 600 AD. Uh, there in Mecca, he chose out of a pantheon of God, like there was, a, there was a polytheistic sort of worldview to the people of that world at that time. Islam started when Muhammad wanted to rally his troops. <clears throat> so he thought it might be better to rally his troops around a single god rather than a bunch of gods. So he sort of picked this, you know, black stone crescent moon god, a wall. And it's very different than Jehovah. Um, so we had a talk, and the, the, uh, the Mossad guy was on my side, and I thought that was funny. Um, but all that to say, uh, you know what's interesting is people like Wolf Blitzer on CNN, and even our president, back when George Bush was president, I remember he saying, you know, Allah and God are all the same, and that beautiful holiday Ramadan, and talking about it, they celebrated Ramadan in the White House, <clears throat> during the Bush administration. I was totally shocked and stunned. Um, why? Because they think it's all the same God. That's, that's their problem. Um, there's confusion in our culture. 
the Mormons, they are off on this one. And this is where Mormons are not, people always say, Brett, Mormons are great people. Why are you always, you know, hounding the Mormons? Well, the problem is they are nice people. I really like Mormon people. And, um, and there's some, some friends, good friends of mine are Mormons. But you have to understand, <clears throat> the Mormons, they have a weird view of who God is. Um, first of all, they don't believe Jesus is God, so they have the same problem the, that, the, that the Muslim does. I believe Jesus is, in fact, God. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. But <clears throat> not only that, but the Mormons believe in, in God in the sense, that, did you know you in Mormonism, you need to become God. That's what the Mormon teaches. You're a descendant of God. You're the child of God. So when you grow up, you'll become God. And they believe God, as we know them, know him, was once like us who was a really good Mormon, went through his levels of ter terrestrial, celestial, celestial, heaven, and eventually became God as we know him, and we can become that too. Um, was it Walter Martin who wrote the book, uh, The God Makers or whatever, is about, because they believe that you can make yourself into God. That's wacko, I gotta say it, I'm just gonna say it. You and, you and I are never gonna be God. Um, when we see him, we'll be like him, uh, when we go to heaven, we get a new body, and, and there's all kinds of transformation that's going to take place. But I hope you know there's only one God, and Isaiah is going to make that clear <clears throat> um, to us here. You see, the same fogginess about who God is in our culture, whether you think he's a law or, you know, the Mormons who look a lot like Christians but are very much not because they don't have that doctrine that there's only one God and that Jesus is that God— that's a tough part of their doctrine that, that they, they don't like to talk about that part. Um, but then you've got the new age sort of mindset where it seems that people, um, people are, are more and more uh, sort of saying, you know, it's the God within or the goddess uh, within, or, you know, God is all the power in the universe and, and uh, the trees and the mountains and the, put your bare feet on the ground so you can soak up the vibe. That's, that's just weird new age kind of mumbo jumbo. Watch out. You see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Uh, we have to know that there's only one God. And Isaiah's going to sort this out for the people. They're confused. Is Chemosh God, Baal, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jehovah, where does he fit in? They, they were just confused. Isaiah is now going to say, let me nail this down for you. First of all, and, and if you're jotting down notes, you can maybe put some of these points down. Number one, if you're going to follow with me here, um, God has a proper name. He has a proper name. I hope you know that. Um, and his name is, well, let's take a look. It's, it's right here in our text. Uh, take a look at verse 10. Isaiah 40, verse 10, it says, Behold, the Lord God... Now, that's interesting. Um, Isaiah, in this dissertation, saying, look, behold, the Lord God. And the word Lord there and God, notice the capital letters in the word God. That's important. Whenever you see in the Old Testament the, the word God or Lord in the, in the capital letters, all the letters are capital. Now, some of those are small capitals, but they're still capitals. Um, the word God, that means it's the word well, Jehovah. Now, what's, where does Jehovah come from? Or Yahweh, as some people like to say. Well, which one is it, Brett? Yahweh or Jehovah? We really don't know. And don't send me emails. I always get these people say, well, I know where it is. Um, that's great. Good for you. But there's a lot of scholarly people that think both sides. And, um, and I'm not sure that's as much the point. 
In fact, when we were given the name, the reason why there's confusion on this pronunciation is because it's the great tetragrammaton. It's that Y-H-W-H. Um, it's, it's the name of God is so holy they wouldn't spell it out uh, in its full, but just those four letters, Y-H-W-H, that's the name of God. Was it you? Like, like what is Yahweh or Jehovah? Well, this is the name of God. Now, now God is more of a title. Um, saying God. And you can be confused by just the word God. Um, it was, um, um, you know, some uh, Francis Schaeffer who actually started to argue, we need to stop calling him God because there's too many people claiming to be God, too many um, false gods. And he made the point that we should just stop calling him God, which I, I understand what he was saying, because God has a name. His name is Jehovah. And notice there's a few things about this in our text. In verse 9, at the very end, it says, O Jerusalem that brings good tidings, lift up your voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The word God there is not in capital letters. It's in lowercase, well, capital G, lowercase O-D. So that's saying, behold your God, that's a, a, a title. Uh, you know, and the word there is Elohim. Um, which is sort of a plural version of the word God, and it can apply to any number of things, uh, fake, false gods. Um, yeah, there's even a psalm that talks about how you are gods. Uh, there it is, Brett. Uh, Oprah Winfrey, Shirley MacLaine, awakening the God within you or the goddess within you, the new age sort of view. Um, well, that's not in the Bible, but basically Isaiah is saying, look at your God, your Lord God, Elohim Jehovah. It's almost like he's saying, not Baal, not Ashtoreth, not Moloch, not Chemosh. There's, behold, your God is Jehovah, and Jehovah is his name. Not many gods, but just one God. Monotheism, that's Ju the Jewish faith, that's the Christian faith. Um, Islam also is, is monotheistic, but a different God than the Jews and the Christians. The Christians and the Jews, we've got the same God. Um, uh, Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. It's very specific. And the reason I point this out is because there's a lot of wishy-washy doctrine and teaching out there, and I, and I think people like to make God whoever they want to make him. I like to think of God as more of a female. Um, there's people that do that. Uh, you can't do that. God doesn't say he's a female. Um, Jehovah says he's the father. Jesus, who is God, taught us how to pray to God the Father. The Holy Trinity is the mystery there. But he said, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Jehovah is the name, by the way. So people that try to, you know, make God into their own little brain, that's the problem. And the Jews had done that. They turned God into golden calves. They turned God into rocks and stones and altars and all kinds of weirdness. And that's exactly what our culture does today. We need to get back to who is God really. And the first thing is he's got a name and his name is Jehovah. Now, let me just show you something about this. And I, it, turn the page to Isaiah 44. Um, and I'm gonna show you a little bit of a theme in the latter part of Isaiah that he's gonna talk about a lot. It's Isaiah 44, uh, verse six. It says in Isaiah 44, 6, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. That should end the discussion. 
The Mormons should change their notes and say, well, I'll never be God because it says beside me there is no God. Um, look at chapter 45. In chapter 45, verse 5, it says, I am the Lord, there is none else. There is no God beside me. Man, this is important for us to see this. Um, you know, it, it's also in John chapter 17, Jesus said, uh, it says, and this is life eternal, that they might know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. There's only one true God. So this is where people also get confused. Well, Brett, the Bible says thou shalt have no other gods before me. So there are other, there are other gods. You could say, yes, there are other gods. The only difference is they're fake gods. That's what Jesus said. In John 17, three, he says, this is life eternal that they might know that there's only one true God. Everybody else is false gods. Um, I know for some of you Christians out there, you're saying, well, Brett, that's a no brainer. This is, this is Christianity 101. Yes, but you'd be shocked how many people and even Christian colleges and universities are basically teaching some new uh, thought on this, <clears throat> trying to argue for henotheism, um, that there are really many different gods and there's, there's a creator God, but there's other gods and, and they, won't, they won't give it to, to you that they're false gods. Um, watch out for that, it's, it's wrong teaching. Um, here it says uh, there's only one true God and that's one of the points of Isaiah. And we know who it is. Isaiah has to point him out and say, it's not the one over there, it's not the one over there, it's Jehovah, God has a name, and his name is Lord God, Lord Jehovah. Elohim Jehovah is what, what Isaiah was saying. So that's important. Uh, the people need some clarity at the time, and so does our culture today. There's only one true God. So his proper name, number one. Number two, his powerful nature. Isaiah is going to take part of this chapter and the rest of this book to talk about how powerful he is. He's omnipotent is the fancy word we like to use, where omni is all, potent, powerful, all powerful. Um, he's huge and he's powerful. God cannot be stuffed into a little box of our brain and so that we can figure him out. Um, I, I always love where, you know, people, and it's nice to try to know God and to learn to have a relationship. We, we learn who he is through Jesus Christ. But in his fullness, we, we really don't know God in, in his fullness. No man can actually see God and live, the Bible says. But God is massive, and, and God is powerful. And Isaiah tries to stretch our little brains a little bit and say, do you know who God is? And so he starts to explain some stuff. Check out verse 12. Speaking of God, it says, He is one who hath measured the waters, that is, all the water on the earth, measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, has meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who's done this? Isaiah says, it's God. Jehovah. What has he done? Man, think about these things. First of all, he takes all the water and holds it in the hollow of his hand, all the water of the earth. Have you ever flown in an airplane over the Pacific Ocean, how long it takes to get to, say, like, you know, New Zealand or whatever? Like, I've gone over the whole thing in one flight, and it's just hours and hours. I think 13 hours one flight I did um, as you're just flying over the ocean. That's a lot of water. And God's just holds, and I would argue that in his hand, 
it's just a little microbe of water, <laughs> the water of the earth. Why? Because then it says, notice it says, and it says um, that he meets out or measures out the heaven with a span. Now, what's a span? In Bible times, they do measurements with your hand, and this was a span. Uh, if you go from your tip of your thumb to your tip of your pinky, and you could measure stuff. If you were a builder and you were going to, you know, cut some stones or you're going to cut some wood, you'd, you'd use your hand to sort of do spans to sort of measure distance. It wasn't as exact as your laser tape measure some of you guys use today, um, but it, it, it was the way they did it. It was a span. And, and the Bible says here, God spans the universe with his hand. Um, that's huge. Last night, we were out on the back porch looking at the comet, um, which you can see just under the Big Dipper. I think you can still see it tonight, perhaps. It's kind of fun. You, you got to let your eyes adjust, and you can kind of see the tail of this comet. It's kind of cool, but looking up in the stars, I'm always amazed at uh, just the vastness of space, um, uh, and it's really something to me, but especially when Isaiah says the Lord just spans the whole universe with his hand. That's just huge. And then it says, um, <clears throat> and he comprehends the dust of the earth. He knows how many grains of dust or sand is on the earth, <clears throat> dirt or dust, um, and he measures it out. He knows, he knows that. He knows how much the mountains weigh. He can take Mount Hood and go, okay, that's just a small little tiny speck. You know, it's amazing how small we are and how small this whole, it's hard to get perspective. Did you know, by the way, the earth, of course, many of you know it's a sphere, a big ball. Um, and while it's not perfectly a circle, um, it, uh, by the way, it's, it's um, the gravitational pull, or I should say centrifugal force, around the equator, because of the spinning of the earth, it tends to bulge out in the middle. Uh, it's kind of a long story. It's not perfect. But, <clears throat> but here's the thing that most people don't know. If, and it's because we all have the little globe in our elementary school class. Remember the globe and you can feel the Rocky Mountains? Remember those, those, um, those, those globes that had little bumps to represent, you know, the mountains and stuff? Did you know the earth, um, it, even with Mount Everest and Mount Hood and all these mountains and stuff, did you know the earth, if you were to hold it, if you were big enough, like God, if you were to hold it, did you know it would feel very smooth? Even when you put your hand over Mount Everest, would you even feel that? Well, of course, it's a you know, huge mountain, tallest mountain in the world. You'd feel that bump as your fingers went over it. Nope. Did you know that the earth is smoother than a bowling ball? Yep. Even with Mariana's Trench, which is like seven miles deep in the ocean, you don't feel that little crack. Uh, if you, you know, go to Mount Everest, you wouldn't feel it. It's smoother. <clears throat> now, by the way, you can do that if you're into math because, um, you know, the, the bowling league uh, has a certain smoothness that's allowed or required uh, for a bowling ball, and uh, it has certain requirements of what can be rough or not, but the truth is the earth is smoother than a bowling ball. That just gives you perspective of how tiny we are. Uh, Mount Everest is tiny uh, compared to the earth, the earth is tiny compared to the sun. The sun's tiny compared to most stars. And, and it just starts to make your brain think, wow, God is just this all-powerful being who measures the sand and puts his hand across the span. And, and this is all what Isaiah is trying to say. You guys, your God is not a little golden calf. Your God is not a, a God that's a stone that we sit on some altar with Baal and Ashtoreth um, and we can sort of keep him in our little box of godliness. 
God is vast and powerful and knows all things and he can span the universe with his hands. He's reminding the people who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob really is. They had become sort of, you know, wrong in his understanding and he even weighs the earth. Does anybody know how much the earth weighs? As it turns out, the earth is six times 10 to the 24th power in kilograms. <laughs> That's a huge number, by the way. Uh, 1.3 times 10 to the 25th power, if you're talking pounds. But the earth, we can measure that. And it's, it's a, um, that's another math equation. It has to do with the gravitational pull of two objects. But uh, that's a whole other issue. Uh, but check out verse 26 of our text. Again, I told you I was going to bounce around. Look at verse 26. It says, lift up your eyes on high and behold, who hath created these things that brings out their host by number, and he calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Isaiah saying, man, behold the Lord who is great, and he, he knows not only how many grains of sand are on the earth, but he knows the stars, which by the way, scientists tell us, there's about the same number of sand grains on this planet as there are stars in the universe. Apparently it's very close to the same number, <laughs> um, relatively. But as it turns out, God knows all the stars and he knows them all by name. That's God and his power. And he created these things. He spoke these things into existence. So we've got his proper name is Jehovah. His powerful nature, he spans the universe with his hands. He created and spoke the worlds into existence and he knows the stars by name. So you got his powerful nature, but number three, his profound knowledge. God has a profound knowledge. And this is, we told you about the word omnipotent, which means all-powerful. We also use the word omniscient, which means all-knowing. He knows all things. Again, humanity tries to diminish God and make him more like us, uh, you know, where he's limited in his understanding. Um, there's, there's some theology out there that's bouncing around that people think that God doesn't know the future. But the Bible says God knows the beginning from the end, and that's why the whole Bible talks about Bible prophecy and the future of how it's all going to shake out and how it's going to unfold, because God knows the future. God knows all things. He's omniscient. Look at verse 13. It says, Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor and taught him? That's a rhetorical question. In other words, the answer is no one. Verse 14, with whom took he counsel and who instructed him and taught him the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed him, to the, uh, showed him the way of understanding? Um, the idea is uh, no one taught the Lord because he was always there. He was first and the last. He was there long before any of us were, and he always will be. That's, that's who the Lord is. But he, nobody teaches him because he knows all things. Um, it's, a, it's funny because, again, the fogginess of our brain, of how we think of God. Have you ever found yourself instru self-instructing God? Lord, um, I'm really struggling right now. He knows that already. Uh, certain, certain people are treating me badly. Yep, he knows that, knows that already. One of the great ways to start out your prayer would be like this. Lord, you know all things. You know what I'm going through. You understand my situation. And then go from there uh, because we can't instruct God. I've noticed there's a temptation for people when they pray publicly 
not trying to be critical of people's prayer, and we should be gracious to one another on this one, but it is funny. I've noticed some people try to instruct other people during prayer. It's like the prayer becomes asking the Lord something, and eventually it's like, we've got these troubles here, and we're going through that, and so and so's dealing with the other. And it's like, it's like we're communicating information to each other. Uh, but God forbid we start instructing God. The answer, who can instruct God? No one, because he knows all things. He's all-knowing. He knows the stars by their name, um, uh, and, you know, the Lord uh, doesn't need our instruction. And the wisdom that comes from God is available to you and me. So rather than instructing God, wouldn't it be better for us to say, okay, Lord, show us, reveal to us, instruct us because you know all things. These are the notions that Isaiah is trying to remind the people, guys, you've lost sight of who God is. God's got a name. He's not all these other gods and goddesses. Get rid of all them. It's Jehovah that we believe in and worship. And he says, God is powerful. He's omnipotent and he can do all things. And God is all-knowing, his profound knowledge, um, he's omniscient. Now, you can almost hear the whispers of the Jews. Well, good for God. Good for him. He's powerful. He knows all things. But here we are in Jerusalem, shaken in our sandals, with Assyrians breathing down our necks, with the Babylonians on the rise. Um, we're facing real troubles and real challenges. So good for God. Some of you might be feeling that way. Well, Brett, I'm glad God's all-powerful. Why doesn't he do something about the coronavirus or about suffering in the world, about racism and about, you know, police brutality? And why does people get all up in the tizzy about all this stuff? But what's interesting is that's not the way we deal with stuff when you know who God really is. When you know who God really is, you're not supposed to be panicky and you're not even supposed to be protesty. You're not even supposed to be angry. Um, what actually the Bible... Isaiah is going to take this chapter and say, um, in light of this, of who God is, all-knowing, all-powerful, the creator of all things, uh, doesn't need to be instructed, knows the names of the stars, and all this stuff, in light of that, what should we think about that? And, and instead of saying, well, big deal, good for God, we're the ones who are struggling, instead of having that mindset, and that would be the mindset of the Jew in Isaiah's time, but that's the mindset of a lot of people today. So what? If God is love, why is there suffering on the earth? And, and people get all upset about this stuff, but what they don't understand is there's a different way. God wants us to think differently. And um, so I told you, first of all, number one is proper name. Number two is powerful nature. Number three is profound knowledge. But number four, his protective nurture. There's a word I don't use very often, nurture. It's a funny word to me, nurture. But it's a good word. Is the Lord God who's powerful, does he nurture and care for and protect his people? You better believe it. You see, coupled with all this great information about who God is, powerful, all-knowing, knowing the stars, spanning the universe with his hand, guess what else? He's protective of, of his people. <clears throat> he loves us. How much does he love us? Well, let's take a look at a few more verses. Look at verse 11. This same God who's all-powerful, all-knowing, it says in verse 11, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. What a tender picture that is. Um, he takes his little lambs that are vulnerable. You know, I, I used to raise sheep when I was a kid. We had sheep on our farm. And there's one thing I learned about sheep is they're really dumb. 
Sheep are dumb. It's not a coincidence God over and over in the Bible compares us to sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Um, that's human nature. But isn't it something the Lord says, I'm the good shepherd and I'll take you and lead you to you know, the, uh, the paths of righteousness, to green pastures and still waters. I'll lead you like a shepherd. But in this case, he says, not only will I lead you, not like a sheepdog. That's a lot of people think God's a sheepdog, snipping at the heels, saying, come on, get it right. You know, do the right thing, be a holy person and all this stuff. And God's, yep, yep, yep. Nope, that's not God. He's a good shepherd. And not only is he leading us, but he takes us and scoops us up and carries his lambs in his arm and, and carries them close, as it says here, to his heart, his bosom. That's what it says. He carries them in his bosom and will gently lead those that are with young. See, some of you think God in his power and omnipotence and omnip omniscience, um, he's going to drag you through this life. Nope. He'll gently lead those that are with young, it says here. Man, I love the, the shepherding nature of our God. Um, by the way, uh, the same God that's powerful in all this, and he's the shepherd, but in John chapter 10, which you could call the good shepherd chapter if you want, um, in John chapter 10, man, Jesus uh, actually gives us greater uh, explanation of this. Listen to what it says about the good shepherd. It says um, in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and I'm known of mine. As the Father knows me, even so now I the Father. And listen, Jesus, the good shepherd, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep have I, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, that's the Gentiles, that's us, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd, Jew and Gentile alike, under Jesus. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. This commandment have I received of my Father. See, before you say, well, big deal, God's powerful, but the world's in trouble, and why doesn't he help us? That's the point he has. God is powerful, so powerful that God became a man, and in his power, he came to this earth, died on a cross, and said, I'm so powerful, I'm gonna let you guys do what you want to me. Crucify me on a cross, but I will prove that I am God, that I will take this life, I'll lay my life down for the sins of the world, but then I will take it up again. I will rise from the grave. That's what Jesus is saying here. See, and because of that, that's God reaching down to humanity to save us from our certain doom and peril. But the Lord says, I'll, I'll deal with that. You know, some of you might've read this verse in John chapter 16. It says in John 16, 33, these things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. Does anybody need some peace right about now? In me, you'll have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, Jesus said. Now, you might be telling me, well, good for you, Jesus. We're still having tribulation on this earth. We're still going through troubles. And good for Jesus. He, he, he overcame the world. But see, you've got to understand, when he overcame the world, guess what? That means we will overcome. We shall overcome. There's an old hymn we could talk about. Why? Why will we overcome through this horrible situation with the coronavirus? 
Why will we overcome with evil that's in the world and problems and troubles and cataclysmic events? Why will we overcome? Because Jesus overcame. And Christ in us, our hope and glory, it's all Jesus. So, so when people say, well, why doesn't God reach out and help humanity? He has, he did. And he demonstrated his perfect love for us, dying on the cross for the sins of the world. Well, I'm still in trouble right now. This life on earth is but a vapor. It's a blip on the screen, and God wants to use this time and the suffering you're going through now for uh, future purposes. But heaven and eternity is gonna be glorious because he overcame. It's all Jesus. So anyone who believes in Jesus, that he died, that he was buried and rose from the grave, they can and will be saved because he overcame and we get to be linked to him. So he's the good shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep, that's us. And we have salvation through Jesus Christ. Man, it doesn't get better than that. That's, a, that's called the gospel message. But there's one more thing I wanna show you from this chapter before we get ready to go to the table of the Lord in communion. Check out verse 29 through 31 of this chapter. This will be familiar to some of you guys. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29, it says, he gives power to the faint. Are you faint? Do you feel faint? Are you just tired of this coronavirus stuff? He gives power to the faint and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fail. Did you fall? Did you know that the suicide rate among young people is skyrocketing? Did you know that um, our young people are hurting today? And because of that, they're doing a lot of things that should be signs for us Gen Xers and uh, you know baby boomers and maybe even millennials now watching Gen Z. We should be concerned um, because we see our youth weary and ready to faint. So, so it says, he gives power to the faint even the youth shall faint and be weary. But, verse 31, but they that wait upon the Lord, the word Lord there, Jehovah, not any other God, but those who wait on Jehovah shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Told you we we're gonna read some popular verses here in Isaiah chapter 40. That's a big one. Man, we love that one. You know, I've thought about this. Um, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. You know, Isaiah 40, you know, teaching us about eagles. You know, e eagles are majestic, remarkable birds. I mean, their vision, they have some, some scientists believe their, the eagle, the bald eagle's vision is eight times sharper than the human eyeball. Isn't that something? Eight times sharper. Um, and you say, oh man, wait, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they'll mount up with wings like eagles. Did you know, there's some interesting facts about eagles, and I think it does pertain to this verse. Did you know that eagles are not the best at flapping their wings? In fact, um, an eagle can only flap his wings for a, for a few seconds, not minutes. You'll never see an eagle just flapping his wings for a long time to fly somewhere. They don't do it, because they can't. They're kind of weak when it comes to flapping. Brett, how can you say that? I've seen eagles fly and they're amazing. They do it effortlessly. Well, that's just it. The hummingbird, their wings are just buzzing, 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 fa, 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 just to stay aloft. Um, even barn swallows, which are all around here, you know, you see them fa, 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 just to stay aloft. But you don't see an eagle fa, 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 what do they do? 
an eagle with its mighty wings, they're powerful, um, but they can't do that powerful thing for a super long time, kind of like me. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, some of us are strong and we can do some heavy things, but how long can you do it for? Eagles are not great at longevity of flapping. But as it turns out, eagles can fly further than most birds, not because of their flapping, but because of the way that they use the thermals, these, you know, uh, they're hot air pockets that come up from the earth. And when the temperature changes, there's, there tends to be a lift in, in these thermals. So what an eagle does is he flaps just to get aloft a couple times, and then he puts out those huge, massive wings. By the way, a bald eagle, you, you don't know this because you're not standing next to it, but their wingspan can be up to eight feet here in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, most of them are six to eight feet, somewhere in there. Huge. And once they get those wings out and they get into that thermal, they start to get lift and they just keep their wings out and it just starts lifting them. And they start to, what? Mount up with wings like an eagle. That's the idea. The, the eagle is not flappy, flappy, flappy. That's the hummingbird. They, will, they that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings like hummingbirds. That's a lot of Christians I see today. Trying to make things happen, busy, 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 trying to fix all the world, fix this and do that. No, they that wait, that's, the idea is calm down, stop flapping. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings. Did you know that an eagle can flap his wings a couple times and get to those thermals? And then eagles, it's not unusual to see an eagle at 14,000 feet. Did you know that? 14,000 feet. They've seen eagles up that high. And then the eagle just kind of cruises and soars with his wings outstretched, not flapping, but just riding those thermals. It's, it's kind of a cool science when you see what the eagle's capable of doing. So it's really kind of an impressive bird. Um, but I love that it, it requires the thermals. It's like you and me. You know, some of us are trying to flap, 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 and we're just weary, we're tired. And that's what the Bible says here. Man, don't you understand that, you know, he, he gives power to the faint? That's the thermal. You know, he, 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 gives, he gives strength to the weak. Even the youths that are weary, um, they'll fall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. In these days that we're living right now, there's a lot of things that you might be troubled by. You might be seeing issues. But I want to tell you, the answer is not to flap, 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 flap. We've got to figure this coronavirus thing out. We've got to figure out what the church should do, and we've got to do this and that, that. Nope. Wait upon the Lord. And the Lord, it's amazing what happens. You know, he, he'll cause your strength to be renewed, and you'll mount up with wings like eagles, not flapping, 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 but just cruising, 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 sailing through the air, uh, going far distances, wherever the Lord leads. That's what we get to enjoy as Christians. You know, what a good word for the people of Isaiah's time. They were flapping, they were struggling, they were fearful, they were fainting. But Isaiah gives them this word, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith the Lord. And I believe Isaiah chapter 40 is where the comfort begins. And we're gonna see more of that uh, and some beautiful answers to the problems of humanity. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us this morning. Thank you for the truth of your word. May we rightly divide your word. May your word ring true in our hearts, Lord, and I pray that you just continue to bless your people. Thank you for this time of communion. Now we go with joy. Thank you for meeting us today. In Jesus' name, amen.